0: Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. In a 2016 report titled Envisioning Pennsylvania's Energy Future, the Delaware Riverkeeper Network lays out a plan calling for capital investment in wind and solar energy and an increase in energy efficiency standards. The proper execution of this plan, they say, could result in the state using 100% renewable energy sources by the year 2050. According to the Riverkeeper Network, a carbon-free energy program is technologically attainable. The will to achieve carbon-free energy lies with a commitment to efficiency and conservation. Joining us on this portion of the program is Tracy Carluccio, Deputy Director of the Delaware Riverkeeper Network. Ms. Carluccio, welcome to the program. Thank you, Scott. Also, Matt Elliott, executive director of the Keystone Energy Efficiency Alliance, also a nonprofit committed to advocating clean energy policy at the local, state, and national level. Mr. Elliott, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: If you have a question or a comment, give us a call 1-800-729-7532, send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Tracy Carluccio, let me start with you. Uh, looking ahead to 2050, that uh, Pennsylvania could be getting all of its energy from renewable sources. That sounds like uh, a, a tall order. I mean, yeah, we're looking uh, 33 years down the road. Excuse me, uh, 23 years down the road. Uh what is that, 33 years down the road? I have to get my maths right here. But anyway, um, you know, we're looking at ways down, uh, down the road. But in, in broad terms, how could this happen?
2: Well, we believe, um, and the uh, technical analysis that was done by Synapse uh, Economics and EQ Research, uh, did a complete analysis to show how this can actually be reached. And uh, if we have the political will and the policies in place, uh, we will be able to get there perhaps even sooner than 2050. Fossil fuels supply over 80% of the world's energy to, today, and in, in Pennsylvania, 95% is from coal and natural gas and nuclear. So it is um, a big sea change that would need to be made. But fossil fuels, they're not secure, they're not sustainable source of energy, and they're disastrous for the climate and environmentally. That's why Delaware Riverkeeper Network... Uh, sought and published a report by Synapse and EQ Research to show how Pennsylvania can be 100% powered by renewables and meet all of its energy needs by 2050. Actually, we can be really far along in even 10 to 15 years, and that will result in cutting emissions by more than half by 2035 and achieving zero greenhouse gas emissions by 2050, we believe this transformation that we're talking about uh, from greenhouse gas emitting energy systems to renewable clean energy is essential. It's essential for PA, for the PJM grid, which Pennsylvania is part of, and also for the nation in order to pivot away from climate destroying energy and and develop clean and efficient energy that actually supports um, health and our communities and is sustainable.
0: Well, okay, a couple key words there. Uh, The political will, and you also talk about uh, energy efficiency and conservation. Uh, Before we get to political will, because that may be the most difficult part of all, uh, conservation and efficiency, where does that come into your plan?
2: Well, we have uh, really looked at Pennsylvania from four different uh, actions that need to be taken in order to reach this 100% goal by 2050. And the first is to expand energy efficiency. Now, we're looking at energy efficiency as a bridge fuel, if you, if you may. It's a bridge that will take us um, to the renewable sources that we need to kick in over the next 10 to 25 years. Um, So that's our our first step. And then the second step is to build renewable sources in Pennsylvania uh, to replace fossil fuel and nuclear or, you know, non-renewable sources. The third uh, piece that we need to address in order to reach this goal is to electrify our end uses. Now, what that means is making sure that those polluting vehicles, such as Uh, Our cars, also um, heating, um, industrial sector are converted from using polluting fuels to electrification powered by renewables. And then our last uh, piece of this, in order to make this happen by 2050, is to build these uh, renewables in-state, but also to purchase uh, renewable energy from our adjacent states. And from that activity, we hope this will... uh, basically float all the boats of the states that are in the grid and push them towards a renewable energy source future, just like Pennsylvania can do. Uh,
0: Before I I get to Matt Elliott, uh, something you just said, again, another word that stuck out to me because I've heard it so often over the last few years. You said a bridge. And Often in Pennsylvania, what is described as a bridge is natural gas and in your report, you don't describe it that way.
2: No, Uh, natural gas is absolutely not a bridge to renewables or any place, it's a dead end. Natural gas is mainly methane and methane is 86 times more powerful than carbon on a 20-year time frame uh, in warming the atmosphere and it's 20 times worse on a 100-year time frame. And actually, recent science shows that uh, these short lived gases, such as methane, contribute to thermal expansion in the ocean over a longer time scale than their atmospheric lifetime. So, if we go for natural gas, we're actually going down uh, a spiral that we won't get out of in terms of warming our climate. Um, energy efficiency is the most um, affordable, um, most economic and uh, most efficient uh, way to meet our energy needs. You don't need to generate the energy that you don't use. So most cost-effective way to avoid carbon emissions and to do our part in contributing to trying to address the devastation of climate change is to reduce demand, reduce electric sales. In Pennsylvania, we can do this by 23 percent by 2050 if we put in place energy efficient programs. And we do that through programs and that we have uh, about 10 pages of the various programs that are being used in other states Um, and that uh, various um, uh, programs even in Pennsylvania that have been captured and unfortunately thrown over to natural gas um, could also be brought back to support energy efficiency and uh, move us towards using less electricity to reduce the demand, and, and that way give us the bridge that we need to get to the renewable sources that we can start building now and put in place over the next 10 and 20 years. I'm
0: going to address that a little bit further, a little bit later. Uh, Matt Elliott, the Executive Director of the Keystone Energy Efficiency Alliance, you have the word efficiency in the name of uh, your organization, but uh, you work uh, with the legislature, with those in state government, uh, advocating for renewables and cleaner energy, energy efficiency, uh, from what you've just heard uh, Tracy Carluccio describe, is that viable?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, our advocacy currently is, is just around energy efficiency. Um, and what we've seen at Pennsylvania has just tremendous untapped energy efficiency potential. Uh, we have some strong programs in place that's you know, built a successful um, industry here in PA, uh, but when we look at when we look out at the full potential in the state to reduce energy, um, at, you know, we're not even scratching the surface of our potential. And um, I think, but you know, Tracy made an important point that energy efficiency is the cheapest energy resource available, um, and that's you know, that's really where policy comes in. I we. We, our leaders are making energy decisions through policy all the time, and you know, as we as we look forward to the next ten, twenty, thirty years, um, we have some real decisions to make. You know, are we going to uh, continue to build new power plants? Are we going to invest in renewable energy? Um, and in, you know, from Uh, From where I say it, what I think is the most important question, are we going to invest in the least cost energy resource, um, which is energy efficiency? And it's one that um, not only makes our businesses more competitive because they're able to save money on their electric bill, uh, but also creates jobs here at home that can't be outsourced. Um, and to Tracy's point, helps reduce harmful emissions across the Commonwealth and across the region.
0: When you say that uh, energy efficiencies are a great untapped energy source, what do you mean by that? Be a little more specific.
1: Yeah, you know, you look out across a state as big as Pennsylvania, um, there are buildings everywhere, right? And so whether you're in the cities and it's high-density residential population or skyscrapers, or whether you're in the more rural parts where you have um, you know office parks or manufacturing facilities buildings consume an incredible amount of energy and when you have millions of buildings of all shapes and sizes um, spread out across a state like Pennsylvania um, that you know it's it accounts for huge energy consumption but it also means there's a lot of potential out there to reduce the amount of energy that we're consuming Um, So many of our buildings were built 10, 20, 30, and some of them 200 years ago. Um, So they're they're certainly not – the energy that's going into those buildings, whether it's electricity or natural gas or renewable energy, um, more often than not is not being used as efficiently as possible. Um, So by building smarter buildings from the start, but also retrofitting our existing building stock – we can significantly reduce um, energy demand and and our reliance upon, you know, these um, more expensive energy resources, including uh, power plants.
0: I assume what you're looking at, uh, you're looking at this as a long-term investment for those companies that would have to retrofit, for example, because it does cost uh, a good deal of money uh, up front to make some changes but you're, and I don't want to put words in your mouth. But what I'm assuming here is that you're talking about energy savings, savings money, saving money in the long run. That that would be the incentive to do that, even if it, you weren't taking climate change into account, the environment into account.
1: Yeah, well, you know, there are both um, both short term and long term investments that can be made, and I'll give a couple examples. Um, we work with some large, um, you know, national multinational corporations that have a footprint in Pennsylvania. Um, for some of them, they, you know, to any investment they make has to have a return on the investment within twelve to eighteen months. Uh, whether that's, you know, that could be anything, but that is sort of their responsibility to their shareholders. Um, so a number of those companies make investments in what we call the low-hanging fruit. So maybe it's um, making their lighting more efficient, and um, they get their money back on that investment um, within, again, within a year to a year and a half. So pretty significant, um, pretty fast return on investment. And then that's also one that will save the company energy and money on their electric bills. Uh, you know, for many, many years down the road. You're
0: listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar.
1: Smart Talk is supported by Capital Blue Cross, providing health care coverage accepted by doctors and specialists in all 50 states. More information is available at capbluecross.com. Capital Blue Cross, live fearless. Smart Talk is also supported by Pinnacle Health. Its 11 principal investigators and 9 nurse coordinators conduct research efforts to advance cardiovascular medicine. Information at PinnacleHealth.org slash MyHeart.
0: We're discussing a renewable energy plan for the state that could result in 100% carbon-free energy generation by 2050. Joining us are Tracy Carluccio, Deputy Director of the Delaware Riverkeeper Network, and Matt Elliott, Executive Director of the Keystone Energy Efficiency Alliance. If you have a question or a comment, 1-800-729-7532 is the number to call. You can send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. Leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. On Twitter, we are at SmartTalk, WITF. Again, that phone number, 1 800 729 7532. Do you think it is uh, something that Pennsylvania could do and should aspire to? 100% renewable energy by the year uh, 2050. Tracy, let me come back to you for a second. And I want to go back to that political will part, because uh, as I said, I I think that may be uh, the most uh, challenging part of all, because in this state, we... You know, we don't move quickly. And uh, so I'm, I'm curious as to whether, because you say it will would take a commitment from state government, probably a lot of private uh, corporations, private employers, businesses too. So how do you see that willpower coming together, that will coming together?
2: Well, Scott, Pennsylvania is the second largest natural gas producing state in the nation. And it is ground zero for fracking expansion if we don't take this route. The greenhouse gases that will be emitted by shale gas development in Pennsylvania will make it impossible for us to meet state, national, and global climate goals. And if we were to develop all of the gas that is contained in the Marcellus shale, uh, we will be digging ourselves in a hole that we can't get out of. Um, As a matter of fact, we would nearly double the amount of uh, gas that's being produced in the state, which would triple pennsylvania 's greenhouse gas emissions from the natural gas sector relative to the two thousand and twelve level that we 're using as a as a yardstick nationally and um, we are very concerned that Pennsylvania not be part of the problem but be part of the solution and actually we believe because Of the natural gas potential in Pennsylvania, that it will be a model state if it goes towards renewables, recognizing that natural gas is a dead end, um, that it's not sustainable, and that we need to address these climate issues. Also, we need to address the environmental issues that are ravaging places that are are being uh, developed for natural gas at this time, both at the wellhead and then across uh, the, the entire uh, state with the development of infrastructure such as you know, compressors and natural gas and the end use, the polluting end use of natural gas in Pennsylvania. So we believe that the policies and the plans uh, that need to be implemented um, are really need to aim towards relace, re- replacing our energy sources from non-renewables, and that's fossil fuels and nuclear, with energy efficiency and sustainable energy sources. And, you know, uh, Uh, Jumping uh, back for just a second to the economics of this, this is the economically rewarding path to take. And if you look at uh, our report um, that that was done by Synapse for Delaware Riverkeeper Network, the economic benefit of renewables um, and the investment of those in Pennsylvania, by 2050 will, uh, according to their calculations, bring us energy savings of $134 billion. And that's $9 billion in electric bill savings. So that goes to the consumer and also fuel cost savings. So this also will create jobs. And that 500,000 jobs by 2015, uh, between 2015 and, and 2050, that's 14,300 jobs a year. And we know from recent reports that are coming out of uh, government agencies that Um, The renewable energy sector is where the jobs are, Mm -hmm. Uh, not the oil sector, not the gas sector.
0: But okay, now what you you just said is what I wanted to touch on a little bit. Uh, Pennsylvania has made great investments in uh, natural gas uh, uh, drilling, and uh, you know, I mean, we're we're talking about pipelines and uh, a lot of different things that uh, are, are not just for today, but uh, for the for the future as well. Um, you know, from what we understand, Pennsylvania has like the second most uh, natural gas deposits of uh, anywhere in, in in this country, so. So, you know, right now, Pennsylvania has put its eggs in the natural gas basket. And from what we hear, not just from the people in the industry, but even, you know, some environmentalists and those in state government who uh, say that, uh, you know, natural gas is much cleaner, much cleaner than coal, for example, much cleaner than than oil. And. You know this gets back to that description of natural gas being the bridge to renewables, but you don't want. It seems as though you don't want to go with that, and, and fracking is one of the reasons that you don't want to go there.
2: Well, fracking has devastated communities where it's occurring, and their most recent reports out of Public Herald, for instance, shows that um, thousands of complaints of water supply impacts by natural gas and oil development in Pennsylvania have been made, and. Uh, There are 285 cases proven of private water supplies being affected by oil and gas development. So that old saw about natural gas being clean is absolutely not true, and it's proven out on the ground in Pennsylvania. And as I mentioned, the issue of methane being 86 times more powerful than carbon shows that it's also a carbon disaster. But I just want to get get back a minute to, to what you're talking about in terms of Pennsylvania's actions. The industry is the one that has driven this bus. The industry has put Pennsylvania's has put Pennsylvania where it is in terms of natural gas production because those private companies have invested in it. Unfortunately, Pennsylvania has um, captured some of what should be going to alternative energy, clean energy, and renewable energy. And Um, Pivoted that over to supporting natural gas development. Most recently, we see um, Pennsylvania, through its pipe fund, take money from the alternative clean energy program and allow it to be used um, for uh, the building of pipelines for natural gas. How this is uh, in any way beneficial to the taxpayer who now is footing the bill for private companies to build pipelines uh, is another subject we can discuss on another call. But bottom line is, if Pennsylvania makes the policy choices that invest in our future and uh, develops the sustainable source of energy that, looks, that also supports the health of the people across the commonwealth then they'll be doing what they're supposed to be doing under article 1 section 27 of the pennsylvania constitution
0: but and that is
2: protecting the health and the environment of all the people and the future generations of pennsylvania
0: that's why that gets back to my original question then about uh, political will uh is that that is the reality right now so how do you change that? i mean it would be a major sea change to go from you know okay we we are going away from coal, we are going away from oil, but we are at natural gas right now. It would be a major sea change to go from there to uh, to one hundred percent renewables.
2: Yes, of course it's phased in over time, and that way it is done in a um in a, a just way because we believe it's very important. Um, that we be just and how we change our energy sources uh, so it does not unduly affect one population or another. But um, it is very clear that if we don't make this choice, we are part of the problem. We will make it impossible to meet the climate goals that have been set for individual states, and we will bring down um, all the region and have actually national effects to our global climate goals that we agreed to at COP21. So, are we going to throw out our goals of meeting co- uh, climate um, the warming limits um, because uh, private companies want to develop gas in Pennsylvania, or are we going to develop an economic um, future for the state that will sustain long term? Uh, our energy sources and our population. I also like would also like to point out that the environmental justice of ignoring the demand for fossil fuel energy is is morally unacceptable. And uh, there, if we take no action or we take weak action or delayed action that moves us away from these polluting uh, fossil fuels to clean energy, it will mean prolonging and increasing the suffering of our most vulnerable populations. And people are rising up because they're realizing this. So Pennsylvania will need to listen to its constituents, and our legislature will need to listen to the people who are saying that we want our climate goals to be met and we do not want to be polluted in the state by the uh, expansion of fracking. Um, if they develop all of the natural gas power plants, for instance, that Pennsylvania has uh, approved since 2014, there's more than 40 of them. Then we will. It will make it impossible for us to meet meet our climate goals, and it will increase by 72 percent the amount of uh, methane that is being emitted to the atmosphere by natural gas. So Uh, this is an unacceptable future for
0: us. Let's talk about renewables right now. Pennsylvania's alternative energy portfolio standard requires 18% of the energy sold in the state to come from renewable or alternative sources. Uh, Matt, I want to ask you, um, the efforts of the Keystone Energy Efficiency Alliance in driving for that 18% goal by 2021.
1: Sure. Well, as I mentioned, our uh, currently we uh, we're advocating uh just for energy efficiency not that we don't believe in renewables but that's um where our current membership lies is with efficiency um so i can you know certainly talk about that and i think it the story is similar um to renewable uh renewable advocacy where um you know, number one, we've started with policies on the books, whether it's the alternative energy um, portfolio standard that deals with renewables or the Act 129 energy efficiency programs that deal with, obviously, energy efficiency. Um, policies on the books that have started to create a market in Pennsylvania, uh, but again, have you know um, failed to fully realize our full potential, either on renewable energy or energy efficiency. Um, But, you know, I think efficiency is a good example where, and it goes to a point that Tracy was making about the economics of the industry, Um, it's coming at this, you know, we come at this from a slightly different perspective, but um, uh, the policies that have been put in place in Pennsylvania to encourage energy efficiency uh, have been a tremendous success from an economic standpoint. Um, So that in... Since the policies were put in place in 2008, um, we've seen hundreds of companies either get you know start up on their own in Pennsylvania, um, or larger national multinational corporations moving to the state uh, because they were attracted by our uh, forward-thinking energy efficiency policies. The result has been that we've uh, this industry alone now employs 53,000 Pennsylvanians. Um, That's actually more than coal and gas combined at this point. So, you know, I think just a great example where uh, good policy has helped to create jobs, grow the economy, it's helping residents and business customers save money, um, and, you know, and long-term helping to solve our environmental problems as well. Um, Given that, you know, such a modest policy could drive such um, staggering economic growth in the state, I, you know, I, it's it's a no-brainer to me, just purely from um, an economic standpoint, that we need to be doing more, we can be doing more, and all Pennsylvanians will benefit from that.
0: Tracy, we only have a few minutes left, and uh, one thing that you have touched on is uh, you, you said that the Pennsylvania will not meet its, uh, its climate change uh, goals. Uh, we have a new administration in Washington, and... Uh, the, President Trump when he was candidate Trump uh, indicated that he probably would not uh, follow uh, up on the uh, rules from the Obama administration as to uh, what we would do as far as setting those goals. So your thoughts on uh, where we stand nationally and how that breaks down into Pennsylvania if you know we abandon what was set by the the Obama administration.
2: Well it's very important as a nation that we honor the agreements that were made with our fellow nations in Paris at COP 21. And in order to meet the global uh, climate warming limits that were set there, w- certain goals need to be met at the national level and then at the state level. And no matter what the new administration does, the reality is if we do not meet those goals, we will not be able to get out of the downward spiral of climate disaster. And those have very real costs for people. They're causing catastrophic weather events. It's harming people who live um, along coastal areas. It's destroying our infrastructure. Life-threatening, imminent, and irreversible damages to human health, the natural environment, the built environment, and to agriculture, our food stores, make it essential that dramatic and aggressive reduction of greenhouse gas emissions are a top priority. And that's for our nation and for all nations and for communities. So this is really not uh, a choice that an administration um, can, um, you know, uh, turn around um And on a moment's notice, this was a treaty that we have stepped into and agreed to on a global scale. And to abandon that agreement is really tantamount to an act of climate war. And it's unacceptable. And I believe, and I think we can see in the nation today with the response of the changes that are being put forward by the administration just since he took office, People are rising up, and they're not going to take this. And climate change polls as a very important issue across this nation and across the major uh, nations in the world. And this is not something that can be um, turned away from without terrible consequences for our most vulnerable populations and for all of us.
0: Tracy Carluccio Carluccio, sorry, is Deputy Director of the Delaware River Keeper Network and Matt Elliott, Executive Director of the Keystone Energy Efficiency Alliance. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank, Thank you. you. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Judge Neil Gorsuch was nominated to the U.S. Supreme Court by President Trump less than 48 hours ago. And already the battle lines have been drawn between Republicans and Democrats and conservatives and liberals. Much of that that divide is based on politics and not necessarily whether Judge Gorsuch is qualified to sit on the nation's highest court. Here's uh, Mitch McConnell. The uh, Senate Republican leader talking to, with Fox News. He's a brilliant writer. He's a strict constructionist. He doesn't believe that judges ought to kind of make it up on the fly. They don't. Shouldn't legislate from the bench. And um, that, that's the kind of judge I think people would like to have in a position like that. Not somebody who's got favorites or plays favorites and you know trying to reach uh, decisions. To, uh, reinforce their political biases. This this guy's a truly outstanding choice. Okay, then we go to the other side. Senator Chuck Schumer, who is uh, the floor leader for the Democrats in the minority.
1: Judge Neil Gorsuch, throughout his career, has repeatedly sided with corporations over working people, demonstrated a hostility to women's rights, and most public and most troubling, yew to an ideological approach to jurisprudence. That makes me skeptical that he can be a strong and independent justice on the court. Given that record, I have very serious doubts that Judge Neil Gorsuch is up to the job.
0: Well, we do know that uh, Judge Gorsuch is uh, a conservative, but there are other descriptions that may not be as discernible like he's called an originalist or Jeffersonian. Joining us, and he's actually uh, taking time out of a conference in Texas, Dr. Kyle Kopko, Assistant Dean for Academic Achievement and Engagement, Director of the Honors Program and Pre-Law Program, and Associate Professor of Political Science at Elizabethtown College. Dr. Kopko, thank you very much for joining us today.
3: Good morning, Scott. Great to be here.
0: All right. First of all, uh, you know, as as I said in my introduction, it has been less than 48 hours since uh, President Trump nominated uh, Judge Gorsuch to the Supreme Court. Not a lot of time to know a whole lot about this judge. But uh, what do you know about him and your thoughts on uh, on the nomination?
3: Sure. By all accounts, he seems to be a pretty solidly conservative jurist. Uh, He's highly recommended by the Federalist Society, uh, which is an academic organization uh, made up of conservative academics and jurists throughout the country, which Antonin Scalia actually helped to found uh, in the 1980s. Um, He has served on the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals out of Colorado. Um, He's actually practiced uh, originalism and textualism uh, as a mode of constitutional interpretation very much in line with Justice Scalia's judicial philosophy. And he's also been uh, fairly conservative in some of his rulings. He's actually been a strong proponent of the separation of powers. Uh, he also um, had a, a ruling in the Hobby Lobby case, uh, which was critical of parts of the o- Affordable Care Act or Obamacare uh, and upholding religious liberty uh, for folks who had religious objections to the ACA
0: I have seen in the past uh, two days uh, a number of people both uh, liberal and conservative Republican and Democrat who have said that uh, Judge Gorsuch is qualified let me uh, start with that with that question Um, as someone who studies this how would you define qualified how is a person qualified to be a Supreme Court Justice
3: It's a really great question. Uh, Actually, in terms of formal qualifications, there really are no formal qualifications. If you look at Article 3 of the United States Constitution, it doesn't spell out what you need to do to be a federal judge, let alone a Supreme Court justice. Uh, Theoretically, President Trump could have nominated you to be on the Supreme Court because the Constitution is silent, that you don't even need to be an attorney or anything like that. But traditionally, Uh, What we've seen in recent decades is a trend of appointing more nominees to the court who already have some sort of federal judicial experience, and certainly uh, Judge Gorsuch has that as a court of appeals justice, and he was also a law clerk uh, to uh, both uh, Byron White and Anthony Kennedy as well. So having that insider experience on the Supreme Court, uh, obviously being very well educated, having a prestigious law degree. Uh, He went to undergrad at Columbia, law degree from Harvard. Uh, So all these types of informal qualifications are things that presidents, White House counsel, uh, members of Congress look to determine if someone is indeed qualified and could pass muster in the United States Senate.
0: We have a question here from a listener, Manuel. and it's a really good question. It says uh, Democratic Senator Blumenthal was on NPR this morning stating that he wants to make sure that the uh, Supreme Court nominee Gorsuch is in the mainstream. And his question is, which mainstream do political figures use? If this past election has shown us anything, it's that there is a coastal urban mainstream and a heartland rural mainstream. We no longer have a moderate mainstream agreed to by all. Good question.
3: It is a great question, and I I think the short answer is what is mainstream is in the eyes of the beholder. Uh, Certainly, Democrats are going to have a different view of that compared to Republicans, Um, much like that uh, Democrats and Republicans have different opinions on what is the best way to interpret the United States Constitution. Uh, Whenever I uh, teach this in some of my classes, one of the things I love to do is show my students the text of the Second Amendment. And I think that this is a really great example of where liberals and conservatives strongly disagree. Uh, Depending on your political leanings, uh, you're going to have a different view of what the Second Amendment means. Uh, Liberals tend to emphasize more of the collective militia right to uh, own arms, which would then mean that they could be regulated because they're more so intended for law enforcement or national defense purposes. Whereas conservatives tend to emphasize, well, this is an individual right. This is the right of the people to keep and bear arms. So this isn't um, a right that pertains to the military or national defense or law enforcement. It belongs to the people. Individuals should have uh, access to firearms. And depending on your political persuasion and your Background That's going to affect how you would interpret some of these, you know, vague or ambiguous um, phrases and passages within the Constitution and other aspects of federal law.
0: And you know, I think that's a, obviously just as an observer, a, a great example because uh, there have, have been questions for two hundred years now about uh, what was intended with with the Second Amendment there. Uh, so, just a, a, you know, a great example and a great great point uh, for for discussion in a pre-law class, I would imagine. All yeah. right, yeah.
3: Go Very ahead. Cool. What were we going to say? I was going to say, too, I, I think this underscores the tough job that Supreme Court justices have. And, and it's, it's important to keep in mind that if the Supreme Court is hearing a case, odds are there isn't a clear remedy to the legal issue that they're considering. Otherwise, the lower courts would have been able to very quickly dispose of the issue. So they are dealing with the most controversial, the most um, you know cases that are unclear and don't have a clear body of precedent so it's a tough job for any jurist to tackle
0: mm. I, I would um, think that uh, you know when we we talk about some of the, these terms uh, originalist you've used that term and that was one i talked about in the uh, in, in in the introduction and we're hearing more and more over the last two days about that describe what that is define what an originalist is
3: sure generally speaking an originalist is someone who would interpret the Constitution or a body of law based upon what the framers of that passage had in mind at the time the law was written. So if we're interpreting a part of the Constitution, the main body of the Constitution, we would have to put ourselves in the mindsets of the Founding Fathers uh, in the late 1700s and try to determine what did they mean whenever they wrote this. What did the words mean at the time, and how do we apply that today? Uh, that's what an originalist generally is.
0: A lot of people have uh, described the Constitution uh, that they don't they don't believe in the originalist uh, point of view. That they say that the Constitution is a living, uh, breathing document that it, it has to change with technology and how the country has changed, how the world has changed over the past uh, 230 years or so. And so talk about that. And uh, this is something that uh, Judge Gorsuch doesn't come down on the side of.
3: That's correct. So uh, Justice uh, Scalia, certainly Justice Thomas, uh, would reject that point of view, and this is something that, again, liberals and conservatives will disagree on. So someone like Ruth Bader Ginsburg or Stephen Breyer would have a very different view on how to interpret the Constitution, where it should be interpreted in light of contemporary issues, contemporary uh, social changes, and trying to apply it in a, a modern fashion, not necessarily what the ratifiers of the Constitution or provision of law would have thought at the time. And honestly, this is something that has been a fierce debate in legal and political circles for years and years and years and years, Uh, and it will continue uh, to be the case for years to come. So unfortunately, this is uh, an issue where liberals and conservatives are just going to disagree as to what is the best mode of a legal interpretation. And that's one of the reasons why Supreme Court confirmation hearings um, and the process of confirming uh, new justice can be so testy at times.
0: They didn't used to be that way. I mean, I understand that up until Clarence Thomas's confirmation, now we had uh, justices, obviously Robert Bork was a good example back during the Reagan years, but uh, that they weren't quite as contentious as they were up until the Clarence Thomas uh, confirmation, correct?
3: Yes, and, and, you know I would even date it back a little further it's gotten much worse in recent decades in, in terms of the political squabbles over uh, Supreme Court nominations, and I would even go so far as to say this the Court of Appeals nominations as well. Um, I think this really harkens back to the Earl Warren Court era whenever there were uh, some decisions made by the Warren Court that um, particularly conservatives viewed as uh, being uh, judicial activists in nature um, and Certainly over time, uh, members of Congress and the public have come to realize that the Supreme Court does have a significant influence on policy at the national level and at the state and local level, too. It's not that they're a legislative body, but their decisions do affect um, how government operates at some level. And because of that, that has given uh, a greater awareness to Supreme Court nominations and why we should be concerned as to how someone interprets constitution because then that will in turn have policy implications and it's gotten to be more of a salient issue quite frankly in recent decades um, and it will be that way for some time to come.
0: A couple other terms that, that I'd like you to uh, define. Uh, read a really good article about, uh, you know, not only uh, Judge Gorsuch but a little bit of the history. Judge Gorsuch uh, being described as Jeffersonian. Now, obviously, that refers to Thomas Jefferson. But what does in in, in today in the light of uh, t- uh, today's court? What does Jeffersonian mean?
3: So generally speaking, uh, Jeffersonian is going to be more concerned with states' rights, uh, someone who is going to place less of an emphasis on federal power, um, that kind of uh, philosophy. So someone who wants to have more localized power uh, where uh, theoretically state governments, local governments, uh, people at state and county and local level are going to be more nimble and able to address uh, policy issues more effectively than, say, the federal government would at the national level.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. You also use the term uh, textualist. What does that mean? I mean, we've heard that he is an excellent writer.
3: Yes. A textualist is going to be a, a jurist who looks at the words of the statute or constitutional provision as they are written, and then using those words, usually literally, or at least in the context of, someone who's also originally in in what the ratifiers of the words meant to try to arrive at a judicial decision. It's not necessarily looking at what was the intent of the legislators who enacted the law. Was there some sort of debate that we can refer to on the floor of Congress that helps to contextualize uh, this particular law or passage? It's what are the words, what do they mean, and what is the outcome? We're not going to necessarily worry about any other supplemental information besides the words that are there for us to discern.
0: You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR news and all things regional. Our guest during this portion of the program is Dr. Kyle Kopko of Elizabethtown College. He's an associate professor of political science and uh, a director of the honors program and pre-law program at E-Town. If you have a question or comment, give us a call 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to Smart at WITF.org. Let's go to Larry in Lancaster. Larry, you're on the air.
2: Hi. Hi. I appreciate you taking my call. Yes, my
0: question way. is, the people who
2: interpret the Constitution as frozen in time seem to have an inconsistency when it comes to the Second Amendment. That amendment was written with the technology of the day, which was front-load muskets and not semi-automatic machine guns or even bolt action rifles. And therefore, it seems to me... To be
0: consistent, what gets regulated out would be all weapons
1: developed since the 1700s. Mm -hmm.
0: All right. Thank you very much for your call. And uh, the point he's making, the bigger point that Larry is making, is, yes, this is a great example of how things have changed a great deal since uh, 1787.
3: Yes, I think that's absolutely right. And a lot of originalists would uh, agree with that. And there's... um, There's a problem in trying to apply some of the provisions of the Constitution in modern times simply due to the advent of technology in various fields. And originalists grapple with this. They try to do their best. They try to draw on historic uh, parallels wherever possible to arrive at the conclusion that they reach. But it's not always perfect, and sometimes even originalists would disagree on certain issues. And certainly that has happened even between Justice Scalia and Justice Thomas, Uh, they would uh, disagree. I'll give a a quick example here on whether or not um, political speech, uh, that's anonymous, uh, using things like campaign flyers and uh, billboards and and whatnot without attributing it to the funding source, whether or not that was permissible under the Constitution. And they reached divergent conclusions on that issue, even though they both were taking an originalist approach to deciding that case. Uh, So it's not perfect by any means, but so too uh, could be said for the other modes of interpreting the Constitution. There's no perfect way of doing so, unfortunately.
0: You know, a lot of this has to do with, uh, okay, obviously you look at a judge's record and uh, as you said recently, a lot of uh, the judges have come from the federal courts. Uh, so there are, you know, a lot of the cases that they've rolled on and uh, you know, the, 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 the Senate has a lot to go on when uh, they decide whether to approve a nominee or not. Uh, but something that has happened over the years I don't know. So maybe it, it wouldn't happen quite as much because there was so much out there. But uh, where presidents have nominated someone that they felt uh, agreed with them politically, philosophically, didn't turn out that way. David Souter is one I think of uh, on the on the Supreme Court that was nominated by uh, the first President Bush, and he kind of sided. He was more moderate, but more often than not, sided with the liberal wing of of it. So, how easy or can we predict how a judge will rule? And with that said, I have heard Judge Gorsuch described as being very independent.
3: Mm -hmm. It's a great question. And a lot of this comes down to the vetting process and how well uh, the folks working in the White House and those in the Senate who are charged with the confirmation process, um, how well they're able to gather background information on these nominees. And what ended up happening in in Souter's position was Uh, The White House just simply didn't do their due diligence in learning more about his judicial philosophy. He was certainly a distinguished jurist, don't get me wrong, Um, but he certainly um, had a judicial philosophy in a number of opinions over the years that sided more so with the liberal wing of the court, and uh, that just wasn't as prominent of a uh, consideration whenever he was being vetted by the White House in the first place. And over the years, what I think most White House staff have taken into account is, okay, did this person work in the Justice Department? Do they have uh, a history of working within administrations uh, that share our policy perspectives? And certainly, uh, you know, Gorsuch uh, fits that bill. He he has experience in the the second Bush administration before being appointed to the Court of Appeals. And then there's another um, record there is his time on the Tenth Circuit Court of Appeals, we can read his judicial opinions and have a sense of how he applies the law. Um, Those are all very prominent considerations now that presidents, White House counsel and members of Congress uh, look to when determining if someone should sit on the United States Supreme Court.
0: Uh, Last year, uh, when uh, an opening came up after the death of uh, Justice Scalia and uh, President Obama had a nominee that Republicans wouldn't consider. Uh, you get the sense now that payback is coming from Democrats, that uh, uh, Judge Gorsuch could be the perfect candidate for the United States Supreme Court, and that uh, Democrats were going to hold it up because it is payback now, and we are such a—the United States Senate is so divided politically. What do you think about that?
3: It's, it's true, and, and one of the things that I think was so um, unique about uh, the nomination um, with, with President Obama is, is this would have changed the composition of the United States Supreme Court markedly uh, from what it is now. It would have been more liberal. Um, it's, it's likely that Justice Kennedy would no longer be the swing voter on the court. Uh, there would have been five liberal justices uh, on the court. But now that the Republicans had basically held up, nomination, and we have a a new one, this would essentially maintain the status quo uh, from the time that Justice Scalia was on the bench. We're going to be replacing a conservative with another conservative jurist, uh, whereas with Merrick Garland, it would have been replacing uh, a very conservative uh, justice uh, with a liberal justice. So markedly different.
0: We have about 45 seconds left, Dr. Kopko. So what happens next? What's the process? What happens next?
3: This will go before the United States Senate Judiciary Committee. And uh, as long as there is a vote for cloture uh, to end debate on the nomination, the entire Senate will give it, uh, but they need to get the 60 votes. There's a nuclear option, so to speak, where uh, we could do away with that 60-vote threshold and simply confirm uh, Judge Gorsuch with a majority. Uh, and President Trump has advocated that already, so we will see what happens. It's interesting times for judicial scholars, to say the least.
0: (laughs) Dr. Kyle Kopko is Assistant Dean for Academic Achievement and Engagement, Director of the Honors Program and Pre-Law Program, and Associate Professor of Political Science at Elizabethtown College. Dr. Kopko, thank you very much for being with us today.
3: My pleasure. Thank you, Scott.
0: On tomorrow's program, a story about guns and domestic violence, and also cervical cancer.